This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Well, here we go again. Police murder another innocent black man. And if it weren't for body cam footage, the officers involved might never have been charged. Horrific footage was released Friday of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols being beaten by five officers in Memphis. Just a week after footage was released of 28-year-old Keenan Anderson being tased 10 times by the LAPD. The two men are now deceased. Neither had committed a crime, but they were both met with a sort of a sort of violent rage you'd expect to see on a battlefield, not from police officers hired to keep peace in our streets. So I am joined now by Ravon and Rodney Wells, the parents of of um, Mr. Nichols here and of Tyree Nichols and also Benjamin Crump, the family attorney. I thank you so much for joining us. Thank I really you. appreciate you. I don't know how you're holding up and able to do this under these circumstances, but we're certainly grateful that you're here. Thank you. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing as well as can be expected. It's very difficult right now. I'm still trying to understand all of this and trying to wrap my head around all of this is still like a nightmare right now so the original statement from memphis police went like this officers pulled nichols over and quote a confrontation ensued nichols eventually ran away but was later arrested Another confrontation happened. At that point, Nichols complained of a shortness of breath and he was taken to the hospital in critical condition. I call bullshit. Total fucking bullshit. He went to the hospital after they beat the shit out of him. After they beat him senseless. And then he died. And folks, don't watch the footage. It'll scar you for life. The only good to come out of it All five of those officers are being charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression in the death of Tyree Nichols. It really doesn't mean nothing at this time until they actually found guilty for the actual charges, you know, because it's still a good chance that they can walk free from this. Now again, I've watched this footage so that you don't have to, but video of Paul Pelosi's violent attack was also released on Friday. And frankly, fuck anyone who shared nasty lies about this horrible incident. While his hammer-wielding assailant was standing over him, Pelosi calmly spoke on the phone to a police dispatcher and he did it in code, so credit that to Pelosi for being quick-thinking. But his attacker was particularly stupid. There's surveillance footage of this bozo using a series of blunt objects to break in through Pelosi's back door, not a care in the world. He's just fucking banging away, probably a little surprised that there were no alarms going off. After the call, police finally showed up and the bozo must have figured it was now or never. And that's when he lunged at Pelosi's head with the hammer. I mean, truth, Pelosi's lucky to be alive. Hi. How you doing? What's going on, man? Everything's good. Hi. Drop the hammer. Nope. Hey, 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 hey. What is going on right now? I'm not getting an answer on call, but... Whoa, whoa, whoa. 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 Whoa.
But a quick reminder, the entire incident was perpetrated by an insane man who wanted to kill Nancy Pelosi because he was radicalized by MAGA Republican rhetoric. Now, I don't know what to make of the rumors that Nancy Pelosi had a priest perform an exorcism on her home after the attack, but after seeing the tape, I get it. So exorcism or not, it would be impossible to forget such a terrifying attack. I hope you die. I hope everybody in your family dies. You piece of trash, my Over the last five years, the stunning rise of death threats and violence towards lawmakers can be directly linked to Trump, to Trumpism, and the massive amount of disinformation they've hypnotized their base into believing. And now, Facebook, aka Meta, is going to let Donald Trump back on their platform in the name of free speech. I mean, seriously, are you shitting me? He was fucking kicked off the first time for inciting a riot and attempting a coup to overthrow the United States government. All of it based on lies and propaganda. Yeah, but sure, why not let him back on? Who the fuck cares, right? To spread his alternative facts and foment hate all in the name of free speech. I mean, seriously, folks, what can go wrong? But on the flip side, AT&T and its sister company, DirecTV, are pulling OAN and Newsmax off their platforms. On Tuesday night, DirecTV dropped the right-wing news channel Newsmax, while DirecTV says the decision was made because Newsmax was demanding a rate increase that DirecTV could not afford to pay. Newsmax hosts and conservative politicians are claiming it was an act of censorship. The family of Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Police officer who died due to injuries incurred on January 6th, was also in court on Friday to face the men responsible for his death. Yeah, Meg, there are 950 defendants right now in this U.S. Capitol attack prosecution, but this one just lands differently with the police here. Julian Cater is accused of assaulting Officer Sicknick, who is a longtime member of this force. And there is such interest in this sentencing. There's a bus, a caravan of Capitol Police, 60 or so, who will make the trip from the Capitol to the courthouse to be there in person, to be visual to the judge, perhaps to speak to the judge, and to be a unified voice on this day. The police, the family of Brian Sicknick are going to argue for a stiff sentence for Julian Cater when sentencing is handed down. The man who may Sicknick was sentenced to just 80 months behind bars. Although prison time might prove easier than having to hear the words of Sicknick's mother at the sentencing hearing. I've been to dozens if not hundreds of these January 6th sentencings. It's rare to see police in the crowd. There will instead be a crowd of police at this one. Mm. Scott, as you mentioned, you've been this has been your beat. You have been following this closely and you mentioned this this case in particular is distinctive. I'm curious, put it into perspective for us and, and how does it compare to the others that are still ongoing? Yeah, Meg, this is an assault on police officer case. And so many of the hundreds of cases that have closed so far, misdemeanors, people unlawfully on the grounds who didn't hurt anyone, take anything or damage anything. In most of those cases, you can measure their jail sentences in days or weeks not months or years. This one's different. 950 defendants, about half of them have pleaded guilty. About 50 of them, Megan Vlad, have gone to trial before a jury and every single one of them has been convicted. Julian Cater pleaded guilty and will learn his fate. It's likely his jail sentence will be measured in years, not months or weeks. The courtroom was 
packed with Capitol Police officers, including our friend Harry Dunn, all there in solidarity with the heartbroken family. The words of Sicknick's sister, it struck me when she said, how does it feel to be going to jail for a bold-faced lie? I'll tell you from experience, it feels like hell on earth. And you gotta wonder how many more people are going to go to jail and pay the price for believing the lies of a would-be wannabe authoritarian dictator. So it's time that the would-be dictator goes to prison himself. It was the year that I finally came out to all my friends. And it's really hard telling people that you care about something about yourself that you know is going to push them away. But I couldn't hold it in anymore. I had to let them know that I am a Republican. The FBI warns that right-wing terror is now the greatest domestic threat that we have in the United States. All right, it's not the Taliban and it's not the drug cartels. We are our own greatest enemy. To anyone on the right who's still listening, we on the left, we're not your enemy. Republican leaders are the enemy. They're lying to you. They lie to you every fucking day. I know that's a hard truth to swallow, but it's also hard not to look at what's happening in the House of Representatives right now and not to freak the fuck out. Knowing what we do, so many of the ones complicit in the big lie are now the ones dismantling the House Code of Ethics. The party dissolving the Office of Congressional Ethics is the party who already see themselves as above the law. And you have to ask yourself, is that what you believe? Do you believe that government workers should be above the law? Congress members already have no job requirements other than being 25 years old. No education requirement, no job experience required, and we already know they can cheat on their taxes and lie in their CV and there's nothing we can do about it. There's no HR, they have no boss beyond the American people, and if they live in a gerrymandered district, they don't even answer to them. And now they're gonna have no ethics requirements either. If that's okay with you, keep scrolling. If it's not, keep voting, because this should make you incredibly angry. Yup. Kevin got right to work. I mean, for one brief moment, I thought maybe Kevin's not the devil. Maybe he'll do the right thing. But then again, I was fucking wrong. He is the devil, and they all are. New house rules given all Republican lawmaker license to offer an amendment to a bill before it goes to the floor. So on Thursday, Marjorie Taylor Greene proposed an amendment to a petroleum reserves bill that quickly went down in flames. Greene proposed to forbid Biden from selling oil from our reserves. I mean, the amendment failed. Get a load of this, folks. 14 yeses to 418. Go fuck yourselves. I mean, which is it, Marge? You want to lower gas prices or you don't? Because I'm confused. I mean, it's adding insult to injury. Then Marjorie Taylor Greene's frenemy, Lauren Boebert, got three of her amendments passed. I mean, so ouch to that. The, uh, the reservation is withdrawn and the gentleman is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I can only characterize this amendment as extreme. Uh, if adopted, this amendment would make an already reckless bill even more careless and would weaken our national energy security. Now, let me say that I totally disagree with what the gentlewoman just said. First of all, uh, what President Biden has done, as we've said repeatedly today, is to release uh, crude oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in order to bring down uh, gas prices. And he actually accomplished that goal. It worked. 
by bringing down prices about $1.50 per gallon since the peak uh, last June. In addition to that, we set forth uh, that uh, uh, this was to address the supply chain because we know that uh, with the uh, with the war in Ukraine, uh, the supply chain was severely limited, and the, one of the purposes of releasing oil from the reserve was to have more in the supply chain. Now on to better news. Friday's economic indicators were mostly good. Spending was down in December, but prices also stopped rising. Now, according to the New York Times, taken together, the figures paint a picture of an economy that is, at long last, coming off the boil. From the Fed's perspective, that is good. So, the pain was clearly worth it. All this sent the stock market into overdrive. I mean, even crypto was up. Interestingly enough, economy hawks on both sides of the aisle are actually giving Biden some credit. This is from The Five on Fox Friday morning. To you, Jessica, I mean, didn't Joe Biden go on the biggest spending spree in American history? No, uh, Donald Trump actually spent a lot more than him. So Donald Trump is personally responsible uh, as the president for about 30 percent of the national debt. And I believe uh, Joe Biden's brought it down by $1.4 trillion since he's been in office. So the COVID money went out. You mean yeah, the deficit? The, yeah. I, but just let me, let me this. Speak, you, I was asked a question. I answered it. Donald Trump is responsible for more of the national debt than Joe Biden is. Period. End of story. Those are what the numbers say. I mean, seriously, did you hear that? Trump was responsible for 30% of the debt that the country is carrying today. Biden brought it down by $1.4 trillion. So thank you, Fox News, for giving credit where credit is due. There was some excellent reporting late last week by the New York Times that paints former Attorney General Bill fucking Barr and disgraced U.S. Attorney John Durham into a corner. So I guess you can call this story damned if you do and damned if you don't. But here's what they did. The New York Times crossing a story late today That is one of those kind of pieces that makes you thankful for independent journalism that The New York Times does. This wasn't just a one-off or a quick thought. The headline here, how Bill Barr's quest to find flaws in the Russia inquiry unraveled is a detailed and masterful account based on international reporting, many, many weeks of digging into what really went down. They found internal dissent and ethical disputes inside the hand-picked team that was supposed to support what really sound like deep state conspiracy theories that Trump got Barr to waste the DOJ's time on. Over a dozen current and former officials spoke on the record. We're talking about people who did the work, many behind the scenes, some affiliated with the Republican Party. And what comes through in this independent account is that Barr was basically a kind of a Breitbart Reddit conspiracy theorist who abused his power, no allegation of a crime, but abused his power and may have crossed ethical lines to press a politicized, hand-picked, Trumpy prosecutor, Mr. Durham, to prove a conspiracy theory that they could not prove. Apparently, while trying to get Trump off the hook by discrediting the Russia probe, they ran into some uncomfortable truths. During a trip to Italy, they were trying to get evidence from Italian officials to prove that the Russia investigation was part of an elaborate scheme designed to damage Trump. 
The Italian officials responded by offering evidence of wrongdoing, but not the kind that they were expecting. For example, it reports how Barr said at the beginning of the probe, rather than following the facts where they lead, and by the way, you find bad facts about people inside the DOJ, great, bust them. But they started with this faulty premise and conspiracy theory that Barr believed the CIA and British spies and what he suspected as the NSA's friends somehow concocted a scheme to start the Russia investigation because they wanted to target the Trump campaign. And I quote, Italian officials unexpectedly offered a potentially explosive tip linking Mr. Trump to certain suspected financial crimes, the Times reports. Mr. Barr and former special counsel John Durham decided that the tip was too serious and credible to ignore. But rather than assign it to another prosecutor, Mr. Barr had Mr. Durham investigate the matter himself. I mean, seriously? You can't make this shit up. The Times talks to a lot of people. This is quite a story. It is. They describe this as fundamentally wrong, meaning incorrect, uh-huh. and unethical. Absolutely. Do you agree with that, and do you think any of it passed a further line? Well, yes, I do, because we're talking about using grand juries and people. And so, yes, uh, it's unethical. What is unethical is sometimes not illegal. Mm -hmm. But all the different papers that were filed and so forth, somebody's going to have to look at that and find it out. Now, Danahy was his second in, in control. And she was like the canary in the cave when she left. It was clear that it had to do with the ethics and that Durham was doing what he was told to do, not what the facts and the law justified. We know that Durham's probe into the Trump-Russia investigation ended with a whimper last year when he lost back-to-back cases against former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman and Russia analyst Igor Danchenko, both of whom he had accused of lying to the FBI. But the Times piece entitled How Barr's Quest to Find Flaws in the Russia Inquiry Unraveled really shows Barr and Durham as sort of a cross between Abbott and fucking Costello and two very desperate asshole hitmen who simply can't figure out who to kill. And now for the main event. Returning to our show is a politically astute young man that we just all call and learn from, Jack Cocciarella. He's a Gen Z activist and Democratic digital strategist. While still in college, he worked to get Charlie Chris elected Florida governor in the midterms, a noble effort indeed. Jack has 340,000 followers on Twitter, and you can find all of his posts and subscribe to his work on Linktree. So let's go now to my conversation with Jack. Okay, so Jack, welcome back to the show. Last time that we had you on the show, you were working for Charlie Crist in Florida. And sadly, DeSantis and his anti-woke mob won. And they won kind of big. So tell me if you would, what's going on in Florida? I mean, why are they so primed to accept the Proud Boys in Miami-Dade? I mean, Luna in, Char- in Charlie's old spot, Matt Gates. I mean, we can just go on and on. Because not so long ago, Florida was a swing state, but not, not anymore. What's going on there? I think what we're seeing in Florida and what we saw in November isn't maybe the state turning red and having a a big turnout of Republican voters, but a lot of voter suppression in big blue areas. And we know that's what Governor DeSantis wanted. There are voters across Florida 
who were worried that if they were going to show up to the polls, it could mean that Ron DeSantis would crack down on them with his army of anti-voting thugs in the same way that he has done with citizens of the state, businesses in the state, politicians in the state that will go up against him in any form. So I think a lot of what we saw are communities worried about voting. And on top of that, we saw big Republican success, but, but that wasn't the case across the board, of course, in the rest of the midterms. So Florida was kind of an anomaly, and I think a lot of it can be chalked up to the actions that the governor was taking and the fear in the heart of a lot of voters. I was reading an article uh, in the Associated Press going back to November 8th of 2022. And what I found to be interesting in this Associated Press article was, first of all, two things. First and foremost, that the margin was enormous, 20 percentage points. I mean, I think that's the Mm -hmm. largest in Florida history. But more than that is what they actually attributed the success of DeSantis over Charlie Chris. And I happen to know Charlie, and he's he's a nice guy. To be very honest with you, he happens to be a really nice guy. And I never thought that we would see him lose by 20 percentage points. But the way that they described it is just using DeSantis's own words. And I'm going to quote it. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Now, they started to applaud this sort of language, which is interesting if you even know where the word woke came from. It was really, you know, Mm -hmm. it was a, a term that black America used to use in order to describe when black when black people don't follow sort of the natural trend. I mean, now they're using it in a way that it was never intended. And not only they're using it in a way that it was never intended, they're using it as a way to pit one American against another. And the way that the DeSantis administration has, you know, when they've had to be on the record about what they mean, what is woke, what is woke teaching or classes in our schools, really it comes down to, uh, and, and when they talk about history, obviously we saw Governor DeSantis ban the teaching of AP African American history in Florida public schools, which is just just outlandish, just a, a complete uh, attack on just the most basic and most important tenets of our history that Republicans are trying to push down. But what we see when they say woke is empathy, is history, is true history. Empa- uh, wokeness, as they described it, um, when Governor DeSantis's lawyers had to, had to say what it was, was history that teaches about uh, implicit biases that affect people of color and marginalized groups throughout our history. So their definition of woke is is actually teaching real history, and we know that. But they've they've co-opted this word. Um, they've taken it from black communities and turned it into this evil thing, and that's yeah. been their agenda, and that's what they've been trying to push. And of course, that's been really successful, as we saw in November, getting the base out. But unfortunately, what we didn't see is strong Democratic turnout in Florida. Like I said, you can attribute that to the fear, which I, I'd like to say rightfully so, that a lot of voters felt um, that you know if they were going to be mailing in their ballots, they might not 
be counted or if they were going to be showing up to the polls, the lines were going to be long. And if they brought, you know, a bottle of water, they could be arrested, right? Or if they had a snack because of these long lines, because the governor was trying to limit early voting, they could be arrested. These were real fears. But Governor DeSantis continues to hit home on these culture wars. Obviously, he's had, he has his sights set on the White House. And it's really affecting Flor- uh, Floridians, not just in our everyday lives, but of course now in our elections and how we view our democracy. You know, the last time that, uh, that I was on and, and we talked about the issues that are most important to Gen Z, one of them was obviously democracy, because, you know, for a long time, we've been told that, you know, we have to fight to protect the future of our planet and the future of our democracy. You know, that's what we've been saying. But now we know that the future of our democracy is now in every election that we have, we have to defend it. And I think in Florida, we're seeing that, you know, democracy itself is kind of slipping away. And in the hold that the people should have in our government is kind of slipping away by DeSantis using these fear tactics and trying to strip Floridians of the freedoms that are theirs. He talks about Florida being the most free state, and that's just not true. Yeah, I mean, look, Florida was always one of the largest, if not the largest, swing state in America. And now all of a sudden, I was just in Florida the other day. I was making a speech. I was doing a a conversation at the Faena Rose, the um, hotel. They have a private membership, and they invite authors and speakers and people to come to meet with their constituency. And I had a great time. Uh, Sold out. It was wonderful. Great size, like close to 200 people. I think the largest that they've ever had so far. So I was clearly honored by that. But I spoke to a lot of people while I was there from the driver who um, took me from the airport to the hotel. And I would ask them, what's your opinion of Ron DeSantis? And I couldn't believe it. One guy was Cuban, and he liked Ron DeSantis. I said to him, I need for you to understand. I need you to explain to me, because I don't understand. What is this love and this fascination with a guy who has no compunction to pick up a whole group of immigrants that ended up coming to Florida, flying them illegally, to Texas or to Martha's Vineyard or to D.C. or wherever as a protest to the government's immigration policy. I mean, this to me is not somebody that you should want to be your governor. It's not somebody that should become what many are terming is the natural heir, right? The heir apparent to former President Trump in the minds of Republican voters, that's not who you should want. No, and he doesn't act like a governor. He acts like someone who's already started running for president that's done everything but announce. That's what he looks like. You know, he's he's sending immigrants to be standing outside in the freezing cold in, you know, and, and all over the country. He's just, he's just, he is a complete abomination to the state of Florida. It, it is just, uh, like you said, I am surprised every time I hear someone say that they are a supporter uh, of Governor DeSantis because he is obviously so not focused on everything that's important to our state. I can't remember a single time that he talked about an issue that mattered, talked about the environment, 
you know, talking about housing costs in Florida, where, you know, in my home city of Orlando, it's one of the most expensive places to rent an apartment in the entire country, not New York City, not Los Angeles, not Chicago, Orlando, Florida. And that just shouldn't be the case. You know, he hasn't done anything to address the real issues. He's done everything to make sure that his interviews on Fox News with Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity go as best as possible. And, you know, people are calling Governor DeSantis the heir apparent to the Republican Party. And, you know, I don't like that because I still think that Donald Trump, unfortunately, has a significant strong hold on this party. But what I really can't stand, and I've said before hearing the media say, is that, you know, he's a he's a more normal politician. He's a he's a better alternative to Trump. When that's just not true. Just because he doesn't, you know, say as many ridiculous things publicly or he hasn't, you know, broken as many laws doesn't mean that he's just a regular, normal Republican like we used to have. He is just as, if not more dangerous than Donald Trump was, because Donald Trump was a buffoon. He was an idiot. We were lucky that he was incapable of carrying out uh, a, uh, an, uh, you know, carrying out a coup. He had Sidney Powell as his attorney. He had Rudy Giuliani, you know, trying to orchestrate and overthrow the government. Ron DeSantis is different. He's going to try to be strategic in the way that he attacks our freedoms. And he's already doing it in Florida. So I really hate to hear anyone describe him as a regular Republican or a regular politician or someone who's a better alternative to Trump. Because as we can see, this is a party that there is no good alternative within. Yeah. And look, again, I've spoke to so many Floridians and yet they are Ron DeSantis supporters. They don't like the way the political arena is running. They are not happy with the fact that all he's concentrating. And could you imagine you can't have black history as an AP yeah. class? This is what he wants to concentrate on? Really? What about all of the things that the black community has done over the course of America's history? Shouldn't that be exactly. taught as well? Shouldn't they be teaching about the Holocaust and World War II? I mean, or is that too fucking woke for him also? Truly, I and don't this, have this an answer. I really don't have an answer. And I can't, it's so hard when you end up sitting and you're speaking to these people and they look fucking normal. They look like you. They look like me. They, they just, they, they're normal. They're business people. They're successful they are intelligent, and yet they are Ron DeSantis supporters that hope and pray that this maniac runs for the presidency. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is wanting to see an alternative to you know the Trump era, and a lot of Republicans want to see that, and they think that's what Ron DeSantis is. So I think a lot of the job right now is to, and I try to do this as much as possible as a Floridian, Educate people on who this really is, because, you know, a lot of Floridians or a lot of people around the country who support Governor DeSantis see clips in which he's just talking about, you know, this needs to be the party of freedom and we don't, you know, tolerate wokeness in Florida. And he just uses these vague terms that, like I said, Republicans have co-opted the meetings. And, you know, some people agree with that. What we really need to be saying is, no, let's look deeper into the things he's saying. Let's look into the actions that he's taken 
you know, that go along with these things that he, he's saying. These aren't just sound bites, you know, in, Jack, in his speeches. Jack, you know what one Jack, <laughs> you know what one guy actually said to me? And I'm dying to you because this really affects, you know, young people like yourself. He said I don't understand this bullshit of he, him, they, these pronouns. I don't understand. He goes, I got an email the other day from a guy who's working for, I won't mention the name, it's a, it's a fund, you know, um, it's a, uh, a hedge fund. And the guy mm-hmm. signed his name, John Doe, he, him, them. So he goes, I don't understand this shit. And, and that's what Ron DeSantis is against. I don't believe in it, and that's why I'm a fan. Because you care that and, somebody and has exactly, a pronoun? And that's exactly what he represents. He represents the, and I hope it's a small ma- uh, minority of Americans who are upset about, you know, pronouns, because they don't, like, I, I, obviously Republicans have a problem with pronouns. Maybe it's because they've banned so many books in their school that they don't understand what they are. But, you know... And this is why I don't think he'll be effective as he gains more media attention, as he becomes, you know, a more well-known name, and he actually has to start providing some policy. His culture war attacks are the same; they're equivalent to Donald Trump's infrastructure week, right, or his health care plan that'll be coming in the next two weeks, and in the next two weeks, they're they're nothing. And you know, when you see President Biden standing next to Mitch McConnell saying we are building, literally building bridges because we're investing in infrastructure. And I, as, as a Democratic president, am able to work across the aisle. That's going to be a much stronger message and will continue to. Now, I guess it's going to resonate with some people uh, who, who have an issue with these, these culture war you know, problems that Republicans come up with. But I'm really hoping and... And maybe, and, and maybe it's true, and I, and I think it is that that that's not a big enough majority um, to carry DeSantis to where he wants to go. Now, I understand that those people do exist, but I don't think they exist uh, in, a, in enough places for us to ever see Ron DeSantis in a, in a higher position of power. I, I pray. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So, look, let me turn around and say to you also, Jack, great job in getting out the youth. You know, the youth vote uh, during the midterms what was expected to be this red tidal wave, in essence, really turned out to be nothing. It turned out more to be a blue wave than this red tidal wave that everyone was expecting. So young people definitely made the difference in the midterms. And I give them a ton of credit because Thanks to people like yourself, I would like to, you know, say thanks to, you know, shows like this, Midas, you know, uh, uh, and so many others, Lincoln Project, that were pushing for the Gen Zers to get out there and vote. It seems to have happened, and it seems that a difference was made. So my real question to you then is, what's on your agenda now? Because I assume it has to be something to do with hopefully abortion rights, but what else are you pursuing in your activism? Absolutely. And I want to take a chance to highlight, you know, the incredible groups like Gen Z for Change and Voters of Tomorrow and uh, and Run for Something. These are groups, uh, Next Gen America, these are groups that did everything that they can, knocking on doors, sending emails, sending texts, making calls, communicating with great 
Gen Z activists communicating with young people across the country, getting people engaged and getting people out to vote. And they deserve all the credit. Young organizers who worked on campaigns with Raphael Warnock, with John Fetterman, people who were in the digital space for those campaigns, people who were working their asses off to make sure that, you know, we did not have a red wave are those who deserve all the credit. And that's you know, that's why when we first talked, I was so excited about our, uh, about the midterms and what was ahead because I knew Gen Z was working hard. And, and that activism is all going to continue. And that's why I'm, I'm, I feel I feel positive about the future. But for me personally, a lot of what I want to work on is keeping people informed. I want to make sure that people are paying attention, that people know what's going on, that, you know, every election cycle that roll, that rolls around is the most important and most consequential election that we've ever had. And it's going to continue to be that way in 2024. And I want to make sure that in the meantime, we're not losing focus of why that is. We're not losing focus at what's at stake and what will be at stake in that election. So, you know, we're about to have a circus, and we already do in Congress because Kevin McCarthy is the fake speaker of the House, right? You know, he's really just a puppet for Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and honestly, Donald Trump. So we're about to have a circus, and it's going to be dominating the news cycle. And it's going to be a lot of George Santos, and it's going to be a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greene. But that can't be our focus. We need to be focusing on what's going on on the ground. We need to be talking about the actions that Ron DeSantis is taking to limit what can be taught in schools. We need to be, we need to be fighting the same fight that we have for months now to keep abortion uh, action groups funded to make sure that abortion rights can be protected and expanded and that we're, that we're keeping, you know, we're keeping moving forward. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do going forward uh, is working with activists and digital creators online to make sure that the spaces that Gen Z is in are spaces where there is political information and political action for people who want to be engaged. There's a lot of talk um, before 2020 and even during these midterms about um, activism online. And, and whether it really has an effect. And it certainly does after these midterms. Young people are able to communicate with other young voters on social media platforms. And that's going to continue to grow and expand. And we need to make sure that we're a part of that. And that's what I want to be a part of. So, Just keeping people informed, keeping people yeah, engaged, because it will be active. I, I, I hear you on that. But did you say at the beginning of this question that you see some good things coming up in the near future that you see positive change coming in America? You, you made, there was a statement that you made. I wish I can go back and, and replay it, that you see good things for America's future. I don't really see the same thing, to be honest with you. I'm very nervous, and I'm nervous for your generation. It's, you're the same generation as my, as my daughter and my son, and I'm as nervous as hell for what the fuck is going on when you have a dirtbag like this, George Santos, this lying fucking dirtbag, yeah. and then you have Kevin McCarthy who's playing the worst game that you could possibly imagine. He's the Speaker of the House whose sole job is to destroy anything that Joe Biden wants to put forward, whether legitimately it benefits the entire country or it's just a benefit for the Democratic Party. 
I could understand him wanting to take that position. But there are things like an infrastructure bill, like our fight in Ukraine, like, I mean, this immigration, figuring out immigration. He has no interest in passing any legislation out of the Biden administration. All his interest is, is figuring out how to impeach Joe Biden. And it's the same shit that comes out of Marjorie Taylor Greene's mouth. You know, I do have to yeah. say one thing, and I give Matt Gates a little credit. I And you know me, I'm, not, I'm no Matt Gates fan. But no. he's really kept his mouth shut. Um, you know, he did what he did as it related to McCarthy. He fought him all the way to, what was it, the 15th vote? All right. At the end of the day, Matt Gates is not the Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think he has his own concerns going right now, and he's doing what he should be doing, which is taking care of his constituents' needs, not playing this bullshit so that they have something to talk about and maybe be involved in the next presidential race. And so where I said, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of positives in the future, these next two years, there's probably not going to be those. But what I do see happening, if we can keep people informed and engaged, is to see, wow, Republicans couldn't even elect a Speaker of the House. Barely did. Skin of their teeth. This is an incompetent party. This is a party that wants to destroy Social Security and Medicaid. This is a party that's more focused on impeaching President Biden than they are with protecting our democracy from former President Trump. And the Republican Party, now obviously they don't want to protect it from themselves, they want to destroy it. And they're taking every action, like you said, to destroy anything that would benefit Americans, not just the Mitch McConnell stance when Barack Obama was president, which was wanting to stop any piece of legislation that he was going to put forth. And obviously that hurt Americans, but Republicans are pretty outward in their disdain for their own constituents, wanting to raise taxes for everyone except the top 1%. Like they are actively moving forward with bills that, of course, thankfully, we have Democrats in the Senate. We have President Biden with the power of his veto. So we'll be able to fend off these bills. But literally writing legislation right now that's going to hurt America, where I feel that there could be positive change. But Jack, Jack, I'm so sorry. There's not going to be one Republican out there, not one, that's going to turn around and say, well, because our party's fucked up and they can't seem to get along and it took 15 tries in order to get McCarthy, you know, as Speaker of the House, I'm walking away and I'm going to the Democratic Party. I don't believe that there's any of them that are willing to do such a thing. But maybe your generation, not mine. These people, and I just got off, I spoke with them while I was there for the 24 hours in Florida. I spoke to them, and I'm listening to the stupidity. Yes, they should be disgusted with the way that their own party was handling the nomination process for the speaker. Yes, you won the House. Good for you. Let's put somebody in who wants to work for the country. But they don't. And as I said before, his whole goal... His whole goal is to figure out how to create articles of impeachment against Biden. Yeah. That's his whole goal. And that's their whole goal. And you know what? It may be true that older Republicans and Republicans in general aren't going to make that change. But to me, there was a portion of Republicans, at least, and 
definitely independence. Who is the coalition who elected Joe Biden in 2020? And that was part of the coalition of independents who said, these Republicans are nuts. Yes. Herschel Walker should not be in the Senate. And the reason that we have six more years of Raphael Warnock, and a lot of that's because Democrats turned out in big numbers, but you know, some of that must be attributed to independents saying, this All independents. All independents, not Republicans. But since we're talking about presidential... But, but Michael, you, you, you brought up my generation, and my generation, Gen Z and millennials, are about to soon become the biggest voting bloc yep. in this country. And, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people have said, a lot of political pundits have said, you know, forever. As you get older, you're going to move to the right. You're going to become more conservative. But that's not happening in my generation. That's not happening with millennials. That's not happening with Gen Z. And right now, like we talked about the last time I was on this show, Gen Z, millennials, they're not only are they working for candidates running for office, but they are running for office at the local level, at the state level, for Congress in winning. And, and showing up and making change and keeping people engaged, especially our generation, in these fights on a daily basis. And so that's the positive change that I see going forward. It's people staying engaged, people not being bogged down by having to hear about fucking Kevin McCarthy all the time and saying, okay, well, I guess we're just going to have to give up this fight and I don't really want to pay attention to politics anymore. These are people saying this is a dysfunctional Republican Party, but in two years we'll have the opportunity to make sure that they never that no Republican, because I don't know if Kevin McCarthy is even going to last, will have that speaker gavel forever or for a very long time, and that we're going to reelect whoever our Democratic nominee is, uh, which I believe it's going to be President Biden running again. I mean, then we're going to be actually able to make some real change. Yeah, you got to say one thing, though. You got to turn out and yep. get numbers. But what you got to do, you got to say one thing. Thank goodness for Kevin McCarthy having that last name. In that way, they don't have to teach McCarthyism any different then than what's going to end up being taught <laughs> right now. It's one big, giant clusterfuck. You know, I'm glad you brought up um, the presidential race and so on. And I want to ask you this. What would you like to see in the next presidential race, right? Um Assuming that it's going to be a Trump-Biden showdown. That's assuming. Poll numbers. Poll numbers are now saying that Trump could actually win. Is that what you're hearing? And do you think that young people think that Trump is still a threat? Or is he yesterday's news? I think it's a little bit of both. I think a lot of people, and especially now that yesterday Meta announced that Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts are being reinstated. Um, in a couple of months, he'll probably rejoin Twitter. Um, you would know a lot better than me the legalese of his deal with Truth Social, in which he's not allowed to use, you know, uh, Twitter or other social media platforms. And he just has to stay on Truth Social so they can bump up that stock price and they can all make a bunch of money, right? But pretty soon, I think a lot of people are going to be seeing a lot more of Donald Trump. He's traveling to South Carolina. He's traveling to New Hampshire. He's traveling to Georgia. After that, horrific and boring speech, honestly, just boring speech that he made when he announced his, uh, his, his run. Um, again, you know, he was talking about the death penalty for anyone who sold drugs, whether that be legally or illegally, it sounded like he was saying ridiculous things. Um, so I think a lot of my generation believes he's still a threat. Obviously, Trumpism is still very much alive. Is he as powerful as he used to be in the party? No, obviously not. Does he have the same stranglehold? No, I don't think so. And as we've been talking about DeSantis, the only positive that I think DeSantis brings to any aspect of American politics is that he annoys the fuck out of Donald Trump. 
And I think if Ron DeSantis is running for president, Donald Trump is real, is, it, he, obviously he's not going to, if he loses, hand over the keys to the Republican party and say, take it from here. I care, I care about this party and not myself. No, it's going to be a street fight. And if we thought 15 rounds of voting for speaker was bad, I can't wait to see what a contested Republican primary is going to look like if it's Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and maybe Ted Cruz throws his hat in the ring and they're all going after each other. There's one thing that I know is if Trump is not the one who gets the delegates, if he's not the one on the ballot, he is absolutely still running and he is going to make it his life's mission to rip apart whoever the nominee is. Oh, yeah, he'll so run, is, he'll run as an independent spoiler. It's a grift. He's in there for the money. That's what he cares about. And so if it's DeSantis that he's going up against, they're going to tear each other to shreds. And at that same time, President Biden will be working across the aisle. He will be going all across the country. And hopefully he makes a stop in Florida, touting the accomplishments of the last two years of his administration, which even Republicans in the Senate and in Congress have, have said this has been the most successful congressional session we've had since the 60s, right? President Biden is someone who's gotten shit done. Now, a lot of people, especially in my generation, think it's about 50, 60% when you ask them, would would you like to see, or how, however the pollsters phrase it, would you want to see Trump and Biden be nominees again? Most people are going to say no. 72%. Incumbent- 72% of your generation say no. But the difference between Trump running again and Joe Biden running again is Joe Biden is the incumbent president and Joe Biden was successful. And Joe Biden has some great, great young Democrats who know that the future is going to be handed off to them, that this is a bridge presidency, like President Biden has said um, before he's built bridges all over. This infrastructure plan, he's going to be building bridges, uh, having new young leadership in the Democratic Party, which we already see in the House and in the Senate. And I and I think it's going to be a lot easier to elect President Biden than it would for Republicans to coalesce behind Trump. Independence as well. I just don't see it happening. Now, obviously, it's not the most popular thing for President Biden to run again, but I think he will, and I think he'll be incredibly successful. You know, I want, I want to throw something out here to you because an activist with the Gen Z I can't tell you the number of people who have come to me, literally me, and said, why don't you run for the presidency? Why don't you do it? You have, the great, you have great name recognition. You have a mouth on you that you just don't give a shit. Like, I would speak to the American people the same way that we talk on mea culpa. I would talk to the American people the way they want to be spoken to. They don't want to be preached to. Let me give you an idea. So if I turn around and I said, the first thing that I want to do if I run for the presidency is I want to start using my presidential power, in essence, kind of what Trump did, because if it's still going to be a Republican-controlled House, you're going to fight on everything, which, of course, provides no benefit to the American people. First of all, I want us to do it. I want an infrastructure fund. The fact that, like my son, nine tires, something that everyone can relate to, nine tires blown out over the course of the last 15, 16 months because 
there's rebar sticking out of the concrete in the roads in Manhattan. We need to refix all the roads, all the bridges, all the tunnels before there's another catastrophe. Let me go one step further. How many more times are we going to rebuild places like Louisiana or Florida, like a Sanibel Island, simply because despite the fact we have the technology to build walls, right, in order to prevent the massive flooding and figure out how to move the water around because climate change is an issue. And anyone that doesn't think it is, they should go fuck themselves, you stupid, and you should absolutely move to a desert because climate change is a real problem. Instead of dumping in 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion dollars after each and every hurricane, after each and every tornado, every single time we have it, we will go broke trying to figure out how to pay just to rebuild the same shit that failed the first time. So let's use the money wisely. And God forbid, as a contractor, you steal like the way that everybody has allowed PPP money to be stolen. You're going to go to jail, and we're going to build a special jail just for you felons, all right? And trust me, I know about felons. You don't want to be there, and you don't need to rob in order to make money. If you say you have 20 people on the job, have 20 people on the job. No bullshit, no lies. We're doing this for America, right? Be honest in your business. Plain and simple. That's number one. Let's tackle another issue that has been On the, you know, it's been in front of us for the last five decades, immigration. We have to come up with a sensible immigration plan so that this bullshit and allowing people like, you know, DeSantis to start shipping people via planes and trains, you know, to other locations. America wants immigrants. That's what this country was built on. My father's an immigrant. My wife is an immigrant, right? I mean... We want immigrants. We want people to work in America. We want people to do all forms of, you know, all forms of jobs. We need sensible immigration. We also need somebody who's going to be able to speak to some of these foreign, you know, adversaries that we have in a way that most politicians refuse to do. And they refuse to do because they're concerned more about their next re-election campaign than they are about making waves. I don't give a fuck about making waves. In fact, I enjoy it, but I want to, I'm seriously contemplating it. How do you think I would fare with Gen Zers? I think what you should do is I think you should take those ideas that President Biden has obviously supported, and I think he needs to put you in front of a microphone. I think you're an incredible advocate, Michael. I've said that. That's why I love coming on the show. Because you don't bullshit. You give it straight. That's and why I, I think America wants, I think that's what America's looking for right now. No more bullshit. You know, and, you, you sit there and everybody, they, they refuse to do the things that we all know need to be done. Anybody who drives, I don't give a shit what state you're in. Everybody has lost a tire to the fact that there are potholes deep enough to swallow your entire car. You're watching every time that there's a hurricane and a flood. You're watching bridges floating away. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. 
that building just fell down. Why did it fall down? Because the contractor didn't have the proper PSI in the concrete because nobody ever expected that there was going to be 140 mile an hour winds that's going to be sustained for over 24 hours. Maybe you're right. Nobody, maybe it's the wrong PSI, but there are systems out there. And I know people who own the companies. There are systems out there that you can make the concrete whatever PSI that you want by changing the formula, and it's all done by computer now. We need to build as if tomorrow is going to be what we have seen over the course. Otherwise, you're going to end up with states that just can't afford insurance in those states. Like what you're beginning to see in Florida. Nobody can get insurance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to fuck up the real estate market. And people are going to end but up saying, well, what, what do I do? I can't buy because I can't get a mortgage. You can't get a mortgage because the bank requires that you have insurance, flood, wind, water, etc. You can't get those anymore. It's a real problem. But, you know, I do, Jack, I want to talk about something that you just brought up because it is fascinating. The fact that Trump is going to be back on Facebook. Do you think that yeah. will in any way increase his chances of winning back the American public? Because young people are not partial to Facebook. That I know. In fact, when I talk like to your generation, I talk to my kids about Facebook. They're like, they don't use that. face what? And by the way, they're like, and by the way, Michael, it's called meta, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. It's not. <laughs> it's meta, right? Um, I know, but he is back on Facebook, and then it's just a matter of time before he's back on Twitter. Will his being back on these platforms, the do you think it'll help or hurt him? I think the worst thing that can happen to Donald Trump is Donald Trump speaking more. Yeah, that I agree. the worst thing. I think in 2016, towards the end of that election, when someone within his campaign with a lick of sense said, it's time to shut up. We're going to put you away for a little bit. You're not going to talk. You're not going to be seen. You're going to stay on the message that we're going to give you. That scene was most successful. The least successful. And, you know, I said this. I've been saying this for, I think, a year now because it was my expectation that, you know, in the midterms, the House was going to be tight. I had an inkling that Republicans were going to win the House. And I thought Democrats were going to win the Senate. They were going to hold the Senate. They were going to expand the Senate. And I said, what's going to happen over the next two years is that Republicans are going to tear each other apart. It's going to be the most unpopular they have ever been, and it will tank their poll numbers. The least popular Donald Trump ever was uh, or is when he was, you know, talking, well, besides after January 6th, but was when he was going on and on trying to defend himself against his first impeachment, right? The more Donald Trump spoke, the more Donald Trump failed. And I think that's going to be the case going forward, that him being online is not good for him. And I think the more that he's seen and the more that he rolls out his policies and the more the American people remember who he really was and who he really is and how crazy he's gotten. Because he's gotten crazy. He's selling NFTs. That's kind of the point of no return, right? Like, we, like it's all been bad. But like, now it's really cemented. That really did it for me. It's like, you don't need to see anymore. Like, he is such an obvious and always has been, but it's such an obvious and blatant and out there Kanye which he was during his presidency, that the more that we see his horrible face and hear his horrible voice, the more we'll be reminded of, of who he was and who he'll continue to be. What's amazing, though, is this idiot, this total fucking fool, ends up doing these NFTs at a time when NFTs aren't even popular anymore. Remember there was that, that ape no, or whatever? No, they're at their that, lowest point. It's at the absolute... But meanwhile, he still had... 
and nobody has been able to verify this. They claim that they were all sold out, which still goes to show you that there are so many stupid people in America who would go ahead and buy for $99. You can have a Donald Trump trading card. First of all, NFTs aren't trading cards and you don't trade NFTs. You sell them. And then when you sell them, that the original owner gets 5% of the so and it keeps going down. It's almost like an Amway type of thing where the more people that do it, then everybody else shares and whatever profit. But there is no profit in NFTs anymore. In fact, the one that I think sold for like $75 million today is worth something like $1,500. So, you know, that artificial inflation of the values of NFTs, it's not what it was expected. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're starting to see cryptocurrency getting smashed as well. Um, you know, it is, it is what it is. Can we then move instead to Twitter. Let's move off of something that, honestly, your generation doesn't give two shits about, meaning Facebook. But then there's Twitter. What's your opinion about Twitter, especially now that Elon Musk has taken over? Is your generation still on that site? Or have you all started to migrate to another platform? And by the way, is there a platform that rivals Twitter? Um, you know, when Elon Musk was buying Twitter... Um, I didn't think that he was going to be successful with the platform, and I don't think he has so far. Uh, but when people were moving to Post or Mastodon, um, sites that I'm on that I don't frequently use that much, um, and, and everyone was trying to come up with a new Twitter and saying that Twitter was going to die, it was never my expectation that Twitter was going to go away because 300 million, 400 million, how, however many users they have, that just doesn't go away. Right. The, the benefit of Twitter is reaching an audience. That's why people use it. That's why people enjoy it. That's why people use to advertise on it. Right? That's why companies mm -hmm. would spend money. I don't think anything rivals Twitter and the way that Twitter works. Obviously, there are bigger social media companies. Young people use Instagram more. Young people use TikTok more. But what I do, I don't think that anyone rivals it the ability to do that. Um, but Donald Trump coming back to Twitter uh, I, I think we'll have the same level of uh, negativity that his return to, to Instagram and to Facebook will. It'll just be another opportunity for him to say things that, that are just going to hurt his campaign. But for me, Twitter, I think, has become a significantly less... Uh, I think there's a, a lot less use of it um, in my generation. I think the platform that many people have migrated to um, has been TikTok. And you saw candidates like Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, in 2020, and now John Fetterman, who have used it incredibly well. And, you know, the DNC is using it. You know, you see President Biden uh, having success um, on the app, using, uh, going to and working with people who are influential on the site uh, and making videos with them to educate um, Americans about, or young Americans specifically, about EVs. He did a great video with a, with a creator named Daniel Mack, who you know, goes up to people and asks them what they do for a living, people with cool cars. And President Biden uh, did, a, uh, did a video with him in which he was talking about electric vehicles and what the administration is doing to, uh, you know, have a zero emission, out, like, you know, zero emissions by 2030. And uh, President Biden has done other things with other creators. I could go on about this, but, you know, I, I think my generation is using Twitter a lot less. Um, but I think TikTok and Instagram are still as prominent as ever. Um, and I think those are really the sites where candidates moving forward will probably be spending 
a lot so of the Jack, time. Just to, let, me, let me give you a couple of some statistics, some real factual numbers. Again, if I'm going to be on a presidential platform, facts matter. No more innuendo. We're talking about Twitter. 396.5 million Twitter users. All right? Basically, that's kind of like the entire country, if you think about it. Interesting, though, TikTok has 1 billion users, and Instagram has like 1.3 billion daily users with 2 billion world, you know, worldwide. I, you know, I, should, I need to make a change at 396.5 million. That's worldwide users on Twitter. It's not America alone. So we really don't know the breakdown, and they're not giving it. But if you think about it, Instagram or TikTok, which is the newest baby to the table, right? Controlled by China, or as Trump would say, China, right? You're talking about three to, you know, two and a half times the size of Twitter. So I'm with you. And I saw that Joe Biden uh, TikTok. I thought it was great. You know, um, you have a lot of now uh, dark brandings that are coming out there. A lot of very creative people. Maybe that's where I'm going to take a look at for if I end up doing something here. I'll go into my, you know, I have like a quarter of a, I have a, a, quarter of a million followers on my TikTok. I started it about, you know, two months ago. Really? Yeah, yeah, 250,000 TikTok users. And, and I don't even take my clothes off. You know, I wonder, you know, <laughs> if I put myself into, you know, maybe like a Speedo or something, you know, because there's just, there's so many, there's just, there's too much, I don't want to call it nudity, but you may as well not be wearing anything. They have these, no, you know, no, these, uh, no presidential, presidential only fans for you, Michael. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Me and Melania, right? So let me ask you this. What do you make of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin going to Davos, right, to rub elbows with the elite class and legitimately actively work against the interests of Democrats. Because then you have Ruben Gallego is running against cinema in Arizona. Will he split the vote between Democrats and independents? Or do you think that cinema is so unpopular that Gallego actually has a shot? Well, to answer your first question about Manchin and cinema, uh, they're kind of like Republicans to me, where everything that they do, it doesn't surprise me, but it always disgusts me. It always upsets me. It's no surprise that, you know, they're rubbing elbows with the elites and going against the interests of the American people. That's kind of what they spent a lot of their last two years doing. Um, but for Manchin, you know, he has helped pass some important pieces of legislation, and I'd rather see him, a Democrat, uh, be a senator representing West Virginia come 2024 when hopefully he's running for re-election rather than a Republican. But for cinema, I think Joe Manchin should send her, uh, not Joe Manchin, but uh, Mitch McConnell should send her like a fruit basket or something because I think now she's the most unpopular senator uh, in America. I don't think that her and Guy will be splitting the vote. I think that he has a real opportunity um, to take take hold and really message. Obviously, he's launched his campaign, I don't want to say much earlier than most running for Senate, but he's done, a, he, he's working, you know, he's ahead of the gun, uh, launching his campaign. I think he's going to be knocking doors and getting the word out in Arizona. And, you know, Kirsten Cinema is not going to have the same funding that she did. Um, now, a lot of that is probably going to come from her big donors, but a lot of her big donors threatened to stop donating to her if she wasn't falling in line with the Democratic agenda in 2022. So are those same people sticking around now 
to help her fund a losing Senate campaign because no matter what, she is running a losing Senate campaign. She is not winning. Will a Democrat win? That's the question. Will Cinema? Surely not. But I think Gallego has a chance. And what I think is why he has the best chance uh, is because I think we're going to see kind of a Herschel Walker type Republican (laughs) run in Arizona. Now, will that be Carrie Lake? I don't know. Will it be someone as insane um, and someone as out of left field that independents refuse to get behind? I don't know. But I don't expect them to run a run-of-the-mill, regular, quote-unquote, Republican. Mm-hmm. Don't expect that. It's not my expectation. And that's why I feel a lot better about that race than I would have if it was in, you know, a, a, a more a more red state. If it, was in a, if it was in a Florida. If we had still had, you know, Bill Nelson in the Senate and it was a race like that. So, you know, Jack, because you just put something into my mind. If I actually was going to make this presidential announcement... One of the other things I want to deal with is the Supreme Court. And I want to ask you the question to you this way. Assuming that the Supreme Court justices are on the bench indefinitely, which they have that right, how much faith do you have in the court? And what, if any, suggestions do you have to change it? Because me, personally, I'd start with term limits. All right. But obviously, it's too late to implement that now for judges that are already on the bench. I will tell you one of the other things that I would do, and I don't give a shit what anybody says. I would add more judges to the bench in order to even the playing field, because who knows the nonsense, the mishigas that this new group would end up causing to not just this country, right, but to the entire world, if you think about it. And what can we do about an entire branch of government that's right now totally out of control? Well, a couple things. Uh, we were just talking about Senate candidates and, and Congressman Ruben Gallego. We talk about another Senate candidate in Katie Porter, who was just talking about the Supreme Court. And she said a point that I very much agree with. Um, new just, uh, new adding new justices to the, to the court isn't about, you know, it, it necessarily expanding it for, you know, as Republicans would say, if President Biden did this for political gain, the justices have a lot more on their plates now. There is a lot more going on in that court. They are viewing many more cases than they have happened before. And if they're going to address them, there needs to be more justices for them to be able to get through what is coming to that court. Now, I completely agree with term limits. I think a 16, 18, maybe 20 max. I think 20 is a little long. I think 16 would be a nice sweet spot years to serve on the court. It's perfectly fine. The, the idea for term, uh, for, you know, not having term limits was so that our Supreme Court justices didn't feel beholden to voters, right? So that they could be completely independent. So that could act on, uh, you know, a, a check of those in our executive and legislative branch moving in and out of power. But, Obviously, they are being influenced, and having them indefinitely on that court is just something that's not working anymore. Now, do I have faith in the court? No. But has anyone really, for the past, I'd go back to even 2000? Faith in the court doesn't mean, you know, do I think its decisions are all wrong? No. Do I think a lot of them have been in a significant way? Absolutely. And I think a lot of people do. And I think that's an issue that we can all get behind is court reform. Elizabeth Warren has talked about a bill of ethics for the Supreme Court. Yep. And in the same way that the bill that Senator Ossoff introduced to ban 
um, stock trading by members of Congress and their family members had 70% support because it's just something that makes sense. I think code of ethics for our Supreme Court justices makes sense as well. It's not political. The Supreme Court's not supposed to be political. Expanding the court isn't political because the Supreme Court is not supposed to be political. Decisions sure. that make the court that yep. should be a political, a political, are not political decisions. And I know I right. said political a million times there, but no, there needs to be a check on this court. And, and that's the whole point. And Jack, that's the whole point I was bringing up when I said you need somebody who's willing to kick the tire, not to walk around it like everybody seems to be doing. You turn around and you say, I'm not the first person to come up with the concept of expanding the Supreme Court. That concept has been floating around out there for a long time, a really long time. But nobody has done anything. Fuck it. I don't care. Here's five new Supreme Court judges. You don't like it? I don't know. Let me, let me think of let me think of two words. Fuck off. Right? I mean, simply like that. And just watch how you'll see America appreciate it. Now, who won't? The Southern White Christian Coalition, the Evangelical, because they're enjoying this, this Dobbs decision, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But as I would say to them too, fuck off. It's just that simple. You don't, you don't get a chance as a Southern white male Christian coalition. You don't have the right to make decisions for another person's reproductive right. You as the male do not have the right to influence and dictate to a woman her decisions. You don't have the right to enter the bedroom between two consenting individuals, whether or not they want to have a child or they want to abort the child under certain restrictions, right? I mean, the same starry decisis that existed 50 years. So you don't like my decision mm -hmm. to put more Supreme Court judges? That, tough shit. I mean, there's another two-worder for you. Now, I do want to ask you this question, Jack, because you take a guy like George Santos or Devolver or uh, whatever his drag queen name was, and then you really scratch your head and you say, the fuck does some wackadoodle like this get into office and more importantly how is he even allowed to stay now the part that i find that's too bad that kind of affects you and sort of makes the case against young people in congress is this is what you're gonna get now i don't acknowledge that i don't agree he is an either. outlier across the board right but do you see him as good for Democrats because he's such an apparent GOP fucking stooge? Or do you think that guys like Santos are just bad all around? You know, I don't I don't want to say he's good for Democrats, you know, just in a general sense, because I don't want criminals in Congress. We have too many of those already. But what I think is important is for Democrats every day to highlight that Kevin McCarthy has let this man stay in Congress because he needs his vote if Matt Gates tries to elect a new speaker, right? That's why George Santos is still in Congress. It has nothing to do with anything more than Kevin McCarthy wanting to stay speaker. And again, I have said for a long time now that I think the worst thing that could happen to the Republican Party is for Kevin McCarthy to be Speaker of the House with a very slim majority because it's like going to allow George Santos's to exist. Marjorie Taylor Greens to have a big spotlight on them. Now she's trying to change her image right now, 
right? She's trying to say, oh, no, I never said any of the things that I did about Jewish space lasers or so on and such, but we all know who she is, and we know who Matt Gates is, and we know who Lauren Boward is. And those are the people that are going to be in power, and those are the people, unfortunately, and those are the people who are going to be at the forefront and are going to have a big spotlight on them. And that's the worst thing that could happen to the Republican Party. Because like I said earlier, Donald Trump's return to Instagram, his return to Twitter, his return to Facebook, it's bad for Donald Trump. Because the worst thing uh, that could happen to Donald Trump is Donald Trump speaking. Donald Trump sharing his terrible ideas. Donald Trump being Donald Trump. But I think that's the same thing with the Republican Party. So is George Santos a, a great, you know, metaphor for the Republican Party itself, a party of lies, a party of deceit, a party that doesn't take accountability, uh, a party that just tries to squirm their way out of all these situations, won't answer questions about their lies. Yeah, I, I think he's a perfect metaphor for the Republican Party. Do I want to be, do I want him to stay in Congress so he can continue to be that perfect metaphor? Absolutely not. The damage is done. George Santos should be removed. And he's not going to resign, but he absolutely should. Um, but because he won't be removed, I think we clearly just point to Kevin McCarthy's weakness as the reason why he's still there. So, look, the as I always told you, Jack, the hour goes by really quick. I could sit and talk to you for another hour easily. So I have really one last question for you. What's the number one issue facing young people now? I mean, climate change, of course, is one of them. But what changes is your generation going to push for to ensure that their future in America is meaningful, prosperous, happy? I mean, how do we really make America great again if we're going to steal the moron slogan, right? What, what's needed in order for young people to see a future as bright as I saw it when I was your age? We need an equitable America. We need to bring back the strength of unions. We need to focus on housing. We need to focus on making democracy something that's accessible to all. We need to make sure that work and housing is something that's accessible for all. We want to make sure that the basic human rights that have been promised in this country are something that's accessible for all, for all people. That's what my generation wants. I think I've said this to you before. I think Gen Z is you know, a, a generation that really is understanding uh, of what's going on. Maybe it's because we, you know, grew up in uh, 2008 financial crisis. Maybe it's because we grew up during the age of Trump. But we kind of we kind of understand that shit has hit the fan, and it's been that way for a while. And that we don't have time to bicker and mess around and not be focused. I think my generation wants to make sure that we can inherit our democracy and we can actually do something with it. We can't just inherit it. That's not enough. We need to be, we need to be able to do something. We need to break down these institutional barriers that keep change from happening, that keep the same Supreme Court justices on that court for as long as they like, to keep the same people in power, to keep the same people who are making bad decisions in power. Those are the barriers that we need to break down and make a more equitable America. We want our democracy to be something not only that we just continue to have, we want to be able to use it. And, that's the issue that's going to solve all of the other issues or give us the tools to at least, and we are ready to work. We have been, we are, and we will continue to. Yeah. Well, look, I definitely will have you back. Um, I would, I'm really enamored by the Gen Zers, you know, and I really do believe 
that the future of America right now is sitting with this specific populace of, you know, young adults. So all we can do right now is stay active, keep doing what we're doing. Any help I can provide you, I'm happy to do it. I'm here. Um, we'll stay in touch. And um, I'll let you know. I'll let you know what happens if uh, I end up making that move. Who knows? Maybe you'll become my uh, my campaign manager for the Gen Zers. How's that? <laughs> Excited to hear. And one more thing before I leave, uh, I just want to give another shout out to Gen Z for Change, Voters of Tomorrow, Next Gen America, great Gen Z groups like that. Uh, run for something. If you want to invest in young people, if you care about Gen Z, go look up those groups, donate to them, see how you can get involved. Um, if you're young, if you're a young person, that is incredible. If you are not Gen Z, you're not a millennial, but you want to be involved, you want to kick ass like Michael does, um, we will love you in the same way, Michael, that we appreciate all the work you do. And I appreciate you. So thanks again, Jack, and I will be seeing and speaking to you soon. Absolutely. And now for today's mea culpa. An iceberg the size of London has broken off the Antarctic ice shelf. The size of London. I mean, that's fucking big. So face it, there are a lot of serious issues out there if you're looking. But in Oklahoma, they're focused on what's important to them. An anti-drag bill that is guaranteed to stop cross-dressers in their tracks. Or what? We'll get our money back? So here on planet Earth, Pope Francis came out last week and said that he wants the immediate decriminalization of homosexuality worldwide. I mean, that's a tall order, but I admire his ambition. How come people don't listen to the Pope? I mean, he's an authority on this stuff, isn't he? And when he says gay is good and abortion is not a sin, I'm inclined to believe him. And I'm not even Catholic. But in North Dakota, a special lawmaker wants to ban publicly funded transgender pronouns. I mean, whatever the fuck that means. Last week, Republican Dave Clemens got onto the House floor to propose his ban, and here's how they tried to explain it. And I quote, Clemens proposed that gender and sex are the same thing, and that any words used to refer to, well, anyone should be used in the context of that person's sex as determined at birth. When there is confusion, the bill says, and I quote again, determination is established by the individual's DNA. Any entity that receives state funding while using pronouns or any type of gender language for someone that doesn't match their sex at birth, especially if they do so in print, could be fined up to $1,500. I mean, those are the actual words used to describe a bill being put forth in the North Dakota State Congress. As an example, Clemens used this, and again I quote, I mean, you can't make this shit up. Say they're a boy, but they come to school and they say they're a girl. As far as that school is concerned, in this bill, that person is still a boy. And Clemens goes on, if it becomes contested, the burden will be on the girl, the so-called girl, or the boy to prove that he is a girl. This again is real. I'm not making this shit up. It's taken from a transcript of a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the bill. But guess what? As stupid as I fear people are sometimes, this was a welcome surprise. The bill received an outpouring of condemnation at Wednesday's hearing with 96 pieces of testimony submitted in opposition and only one in favor. 
I see no way this law would pass any sort of legal challenge based on basic legal construction principles, said Christina Sambor, an attorney with the North Dakota Human Rights Coalition. It's vague, fails to advance any legitimate state interest, and not only would cause impermissible gender-based discrimination, its very purpose is gender-based discrimination. The Bismarck Tribune claims that Clemens was confronted after he left the room by Christina Feldman, the mother of a trans girl who died by a suicide in 2021. Feldman reportedly tried to tell Clemens that proper pronouns were, and I quote, the simplest way to validate trans people like her daughter. But Clemens repeatedly misgendered her child and asked whether Feldman had tried conversion therapy. Well, did you, lady? I mean, did you try conversation therapy because it might have made your child hate you? Clemens's language may be cartoonishly unenforceable, but the draconian intent behind his words has actual support in the North Dakota legislature. Not from parents, but from politicians. Unfortunately, there are a host of other anti-LGBTQ bills currently making their way through the North Dakota body, including a bill to incarcerate librarians who don't comply with book bans. I mean, aren't Republicans the limited government folks? I mean, except when it comes to your sexuality, your gender, your health care, and what you read. It's frightening and funny all at the same time. I mean, don't say gay sounds like a joke, but apparently not everyone thinks so. MAGA's trade conspiracy theories like baseball cards, but the latest is that sexuality is like a cold. One kid comes out and the rest will get sick. But there are not more gay people now. There are just more healthy gay people now. Out and proud gay people now. So don't legislate sexuality. Protect an individual's right to privacy. And by the way, an iceberg the size of London just broke off the Antarctic ice shelf. So somebody please get on that right away. Enough with this other fucking bullshit. And more importantly, and as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.